Hi guys, so this is Lori again, and today's podcast is absolutely such a blessing to me. It's Robin O'Brien. She may know her as the mom that is fighting the food industry and bringing to the forefront of the world about food allergies in our children and how we've had such a dramatic increase over the last decade or two. And, you know, it really brings to light the ignorance of you know, the medical profession, um, I certainly didn't realize how severe food allergies have been affecting our kids and having children a little bit older than Robin's, it really brings home the message of how we need to be vigilant of the food system that we're creating for not only ourselves, but future generations. And Robin has been an amazing, courageous soldier that's fighting for us. And uh, to be part of her team and tribe is just an amazing, an amazing thing in my life. And again, I, I was truly blessed by our conversation and I was just so excited to finally connect with her outside of Facebook, but actually, you know, face to face in an interview. And granted, this is over Skype, but she's such a delight. You just, you feel her love and warmth just ooze throughout this conversation. And she shared with me, she just wants to share with everyone to be empowered and to be courage, have the courage to, to create the change that one person can actually make a difference. And I hope you really realize how, what a special treat it is to actually listen to her speak. If you ever do get an opportunity to, I hope you would do that. And you can find her at robinobrien.com. Um, she also is the chief inspiration officer at the Allergy Kids Foundation, which she did found. You can also find her on Facebook at Robin O'Brien USA. And she shares great information. She keeps you um, fully aware of what's going on in the allergy scene. And with Big Food, we talk about Big Pharma in this interview. We talk about a whole host of things and how you, you know, progress is not perfection and don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. With that, I hope you enjoy this. And again, I. I'm truly blessed to have spoken to her. Welcome to the Dr. Lori Marvis podcast. Today, I am absolutely thrilled and blessed to have Robin O'Brien with me today. And I'll tell you, she's a superhero uh, for parents and anyone with kids with allergies and fighting our food industry. And we're making huge changes. Thank you for, uh, for joining me on the podcast today, Robin. Oh, Lori, so excited to talk to you. So it's oh, great. It's, it's a blast. So for those of you who don't know Robin, um, she has an amazing story. And Robin, if you wouldn't mind telling me just kind of how this all started for you, your background and your story with your family. Yeah, well, I mean, if I were to think back 20 years ago when I was um, just finishing business school, I was being recruited by Exxon. I was being recruited by Enron. Uh, I really wanted to go into equities because I have a tendency to get bored really easily. And I love the dynamics of following a bunch of different industries and a bunch of different companies and meeting a bunch of management teams. And so that's what I did. Um, I started out on the debt side and I moved over to the equity side and I totally loved that job. And I mean, I loved it. I didn't want to leave. And when we had our first child when we were pregnant with our first child, I thought, okay, I'm going to take a few years off and fully intend to go back to this once the kids are up and running and we get through kind of the baby making years. And, um, that never happened. <laughs> and life has a funny way of sort of dictating itself. 
And, you know, in those early years before our youngest child was born, I did, you know, I was, I was home with the kids, but I was staying completely current on everything I had done as an analyst. I was staying in touch with all of the companies and researchers that I had worked with that had covered us. You know, I was staying in touch with all the analysts in these different sectors, you know, that had covered us. I was totally staying current thinking I'm going to plug back into this and keep going. And one of the guys that I had worked with in the equities world, he'd been the derivatives trader and he and I had done a lot of work together um, as we brought the hedge fund, the first hedge fund at the company out. Um, and so I thought, you know, Brand's from Colorado and maybe he and his wife want to move back to Colorado and we can just start something here because we had moved to Colorado. And he moved back to Colorado and I really thought like I was going to start this fund with him. And we had all these ideas and he had a name and he even thought about like the sign that he was going to hang. I mean, really like that was my vision for my life. Wow. And, um, when our fourth child was born, um, like many families with little kids, I mean, you are literally just trying to survive those baby years. They're crazy. And you know, it's exhausting and tiring and exhilarating and love fueled and tears is everything. And, you know, I was a mom of four kids under the age of five, and I didn't want anybody telling me what to do or, or how to feed them. You know, we had moved from Houston to Boulder, which are two very different places. And when we landed here, you know, we had a lot of people eating organic or talking about organic. And I was like, that just must be a hobby here. You know, I mean, we hadn't had that in Houston. And it was almost like I had landed on a different planet. I was, was so foreign, all of it. You know, we hadn't recycled anything as kids. You know, we never talked about environmental stuff. And that was the language out here. So I, you know, was sort of this person observing for a long time. And then when our fourth child was diagnosed with food allergies, which actually, Lori, is 11 years ago exactly today. Oh, wow. Um, she, that just, that that changed my life. And I'm very thankful for those years as a financial analyst and equity analyst because what I was able to do was take that skill set, dive back into the numbers, dive back into these business models and ask questions that I had never thought to ask when I was working on the desk. And, you know, one of the first things to hit me was when you dive into that data, you know, here I was like any mom that is, has a child that's suddenly been diagnosed you're just in this like frozen paralysis. And I just thought I need to try to understand this. And as I was trying to go to some of these nonprofits, you were sort of locked out. You had to pay for a membership fee. And that really bothered me because I didn't think that there should be sort of any kind of economic discrimination on the information. And I thought, you know, if my child had been diagnosed with cancer or diabetes or one of these other things, like you could get free information. But for some reason in the food allergy world at that point in time, there really wasn't a lot of information unless you join this one organization and paid a membership fee. And so I thought that doesn't hit me right. There should be free information, this democracy of information. And so as I started researching and pulling information, whether it was from the CDC, um, that was a great resource at that time. You know, I realized that a lot of moms were struggling. And um, as I was pulling that information, when you go into those databases, you know, from the CDC um, or the president's cancer panel, any places you can't just get, you can't just isolate out food allergies. And so what happened was, as I was going in in the spring of 2006, extrapolating this data, it wasn't just food allergies. It was, you know, at that point in time, it was one in 17 kids that had food allergies. Well, we know today it's at least one in 13, at least two kids in every classroom, probably more. And at the same time I was pulling that data, I was learning that one in 10 kids have asthma 
that the CDC doesn't actually count food allergy deaths. They count asthma deaths. And, you know, I now know a decade into this work that there are food allergy families whose children have died from a food allergic reaction, but because it was loss of air, you know, through the airways, the death is actually marked as an asthma death. So without knowing exactly how many kids are dying every year from food allergies, you know, we were all sort of navigating this in the dark. And that really bothered me. And then on top of that, I was learning about the rates of autism, the rates of ADHD. Um, the CDC was reporting that one in three kids born in the year 2000, which is this year's 11th graders, which happens to be my oldest child's class, one in three Caucasian kids and one in two minority kids in that 11th grade class are expected to be insulin dependent by the time they reach adulthood. So I'm looking at all this data. And, if, you know, at this point, we're kind of everybody's talking about obesity. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like there is a real crisis happening in the health of our kids. And why aren't we talking about this? And I sat with that information for a while because I wasn't an advocate. I'm from a really conservative family. I wanted to be in finance. What I liked about finance was that I got to hide behind these like five computer screens. I didn't have to be in front of people. Um, and so I really struggled internally with how do I navigate this? And I thought, I kept thinking at the time, you know, if I reach out to someone with a bigger platform. And so people would say, you know, reach out to, to Bobby Kennedy, Robert you know, Kennedy Jr. He's got kids with food allergies and asthma and you know, he knows this. And, and, you know, naively, I kept thinking I can get it into someone else's hands. And then people said, Re reach out to Erin Brockovich, you know, I mean, she'd be great. She could get into her hands. And, you know, that story is just, I still, um, I emailed her the other day and I still like, it still just amazes me that story, how much it changed my lens because I thought, okay, I can, I have to try to reach out to these people. You know, I, I mean, at that point in time, no one knew who I was and I was this mother of four. I was trying to navigate food allergies. I was trying to get a lot of information out. Um, and so as I was reaching out to these different people, I was super careful with how I crafted those letters and those emails, because I was like, you know, this is a really tough thing to articulate that these studies have been compromised by multinational companies that, you know, the information that we need to protect our children is not available. And as I crafted it to Kennedy or to Aaron Brockovich, you know, I took so much time drafting those letters and those emails to Kennedy's letter. I think I probably like trashed 20 times before I finally came up with the one that I liked. Um, and what was amazing was that everybody responded and it didn't matter if I was writing to the head guy at the Today Show at the time, he was in data four, everybody responded. And I thought, this is a universal problem. And what was so unique about Erin's response was that she had lost her brother to a food allergic reaction. And she, she said, you know, I hear I was hoping like, can I give it to you? You know, can I hand this to you? And she was like, I'm so glad someone's finally taking this on, you know? And I was like, oh no, that's not what I was, that's not where I was thinking this was going to go. You know, it came back on my plate, but kind of with a go for it, you know? And, um, I, I sat, you know, it probably was six months of wrestling with it. Um, I remember one day, you know, looking out in the backyard at the four kids playing and thinking, if I don't tell the story, who will? And if I don't do it now, when? And, you know, the story was that, you know, as I was pulling this data and this information on food allergies, it was this realization that this huge multinational company, Monsanto, had played a huge role in completely altering our food supply. 
and that that had never been labeled for the American public when it had been labeled for for consumers and citizens around the world. So I thought, you know, we're not asking for anybody to reinvent the wheel here. This is the standard. This is the gold standard around the world. And particularly for food allergy families, this is an absolutely critical issue. That's incredible. And Monsanto actually actually was uh, one of the backers of the American Academy of Pediatrics for a while. I know. And it was actually your post because, you know, I'm following you on Facebook and I'm seeing, I mean, it never even dawned on me to look at who is actually sponsoring these academies. So I start, I dug down deeper into the American Academy of Family Practice and Coca-Cola, Pepsi. No. I was like, why would that be? And then you look at the American Dietetic Association, all these different things. And I learned so much just from all the information that you're pulling out. And I'm a physician and I went to medical school and food allergies was a very small part, but granted I was back in the nineties. Um, but it's impressive to me how uneducated, not only the general population, but the medical population as well. And it's a, it's an unfortunate thing. We, and they don't ever look at food. It's just like with the diabetes and the obesity and food addiction is my new thing is I'm digging deep into the food addiction right now. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, you know, Hyla Cass is another physician that's done a lot of work on that. And, um, I have a dear friend from high school. I think, you know, I'm Dr. Garth Davis. I mean, I don't know what it was about our high school. It was so hard and they just kicked our butts and it created people that, you know, our mascot at the time was rebels. And I'm like, we are the rebels, you know? <laughs> um, but he's the same, you know, where he's, he's a physician down in, in Houston dealing with the obesity epidemic. And he's like, just, we're not taught this in school. It's a joke. You know, we maybe get an hour of the role that nutrition can play in our health. And then you look at like all these chronic conditions and something like 90% of them can be really helped mm-hmm. by diet and nutrition. And it's not like it's going to be one size fits all. Everybody's suddenly going to be cured, but it's like, if we can lessen the burden of these conditions on our economy and on our families. And, you know, I say that now knowing the grief that a family carries at the loss of a child or the grief that a family will carry with an autism diagnosis, or what happens, you know, the percentage of marriages that will end with an autism diagnosis. And again, it's like, what can we be doing now to prevent? Because we have a very sick society. And, you know, it used to be, I would say maybe 20 years ago, if you went around an auditorium and asked people to raise their hand, if they knew somebody that had cancer, some would have gone up. Mm-hmm. I would guarantee that if you asked an auditorium, to raise their hand, you know, somebody that's had cancer, every single hand would go up. And that burden alone on our economy is tremendous. We've had oncologists write in the New England Journal of Medicine that the weight of that burden on the healthcare system would cripple the healthcare system. And then, as you mentioned, I mean, the same thing with diabetes, the weight of the healthcare costs of that condition would cripple our system. And so, you know, what I, as my work continues to evolve, um, I've spent a lot of time highlighting this double standard in the food industry. I spent a ton of time, as you said, talking about these multinational processed food companies and chemical companies that are funding a lot of the research. And, you know, Monsanto does. They fund a lot of food allergy research. That's like Coca-Cola funding obesity research. Same thing. Or the tobacco industry, you know, funding cancer research. And it's kind of that playbook. Um, But really the next nugget, I think, for all of us to really take a hard look at is this is the drug system and the fact that. 18, close to 20% of our GDP now is spent on healthcare and disease management. 
And that cost is huge. And it's coming in skyrocketing drug prices, not just EpiPens, but also diabetes drugs, you know, a lot of these different drugs. And then, you know, Myelin alone, I think last year had like seven drugs that they jacked up the price over 100%. And so, you know, it's a game winner for them because we're sick and we need these things. And what are you going to do? Not get the medicine? So they got you. I mean, they totally got you pinned to the counter. And um, I think what's interesting now is I'm starting to hear from parents inside again who are CEOs. And it was the same thing in the food industry. I started hearing from these parents inside who asked, you know, what, how can... I fix this. How can I be part of the change? Can you help me? And now what's interesting is inside the pharmaceutical industry, the same thing's happening. Hearing from CEOs who have four kids and the youngest child has food allergies and they realize that they can create change. And I think one of the most inspiring parts of my work is to see people find their courage. And I hope always to be sort of something that reflects that back to people, you know, that I can help reflect their courage back to them and help them see their courage. I had a very dear friend do that to me in the early years of my work, and he will always be part of my heart because of that role. And I think to have a friend like that, to have a mentor like that is such a pivotal part of helping somebody really grow into their own voice and become part of this change that we really need for these kids. So what do you t- what do you advise those CEOs that are coming from the pharmaceutical industry because that is such a large industry. I mean, you could, it, it's it's a monster. So what do you tell them? You know, it's a monster and it's interesting because on the one hand, personally they're like what do I eat? You know, what am I supposed to be doing? Or you know, I mean it's it's fascinating. It's like they they all of us are struggling with this. You know, we're all sick. We're all wanting free from food. We all want to try to get the junk out of our diets. You know, everybody's navigating away from high fructose corn syrup, away from artificial dyes. What we're getting to is kind of a food system that the rest of the world has embraced. You know, Um, we're a little late to the party, but we're getting there. And so it's sort of multifaceted. It's like they're really grateful. I mean, a lot of the inside the industry will be really grateful for what I've done on the food front. Um, But I think courage is contagious. And... I think, you know, Mylan had a monopoly and a monopoly can be pretty intimidating for those that are sort of in that system. And, um, I think, you know, once people started to really speak out and I think especially one of the things I tried to do was project the voices of the mothers who had lost their children. I realized I had this stage and I could put all these different people on it and those mothers, that is just irrefutable. And they're really amazing ambassadors for our children. And I don't know how they do it. It gives me the chills just saying it because I think about them. And they're communicating with me every single day. And they find the courage and strength to continue to advocate for these kids after suffering one of the most unimaginable losses. And, um, And unfortunately, you know, none of us are immune from that. So those parents now are inside these drug companies. And I think just like the big food companies, they're trying to figure out how do they make it better. So, for example, what we saw at CVS Pharmacy was that CEO said, I'm going to introduce this low-cost alternative. It's a sixth of the price of the EpiPen. Um, You know, we're going to make sure that families have access. Um, Something else I've learned from different companies is that if you ask for a cash price, it's usually lower if you can pay in cash. So that's a good thing for parents to know on any drug. And then... um, you know, we're starting to see companies like Avicu 
try to get a really creative model going. And it's massively confusing given the kind of current system and the current way of thinking when they come out with a price tag of 4,500, but commit to the lower cost to the patient. And when I reached out to that CEO, he just said, we're putting the consumer first. Like that is the front of what we do is what is she going to have to pay? How is she going to keep her kids safe? Because they truly believe their product is the best. And if it's a Siri like talking device, you know, that's very 21st century that our kids kind of intuitively already can grasp probably is the smartest device. So they're trying to sort of back, they're trying to actually create a whole new model, which is pretty brave. Um, and I think it's really just the beginning of the disruption. So what I would anticipate is a lot of disruption in the pharmaceutical industry. You know, we've had these three players, these pharmacy benefit managers that are kind of these middlemen and they are a bottleneck to everything. So they control who's on the shelves, what price these guys are on the shelves, what we're going to pay. They negotiate the deals between the drug companies, the insurance companies. And we, the consumer, aren't sitting at that table as part of that negotiation. But Mylan is, you know, and the pharmacy benefit manager is. So that model really is time for a pretty awesome disruption. And especially if you think about like how most parents today buy everything online and you think about these Amazon prime accounts that everybody has, where it's like, you need something and it's, it's shipped in two days, you get it. Um, and I think that model invites a lot of opportunity for disruption when it comes to drug delivery. Um, you know, it's something that everyone's obviously going to have to be really careful with as that's developed. Um, but again, I think there's huge opportunity. And then I think like when it comes to our doctors, um, you know, medical schools are funded by the drug companies. So there's not a whole lot of incentive for the drug companies to tell us that, you know, if you eat these things, you stay healthy and you stay out of the system. Um, I do think if it's not going to be a medical school, there should be some kind of supplemental training that doctors receive about diet and nutrition. And like you said, we saw it with the American Academy of Pediatrics a couple of years ago when they issued a statement paper on organics, because I think what was happening was that, you know, parents were coming into their offices asking them all about organics and they just didn't know, you know, and if you had, I mean, it would have been me. It's like, if you had somebody come into your office and say, what's the difference between organic milk and conventional milk, or, you know, what's the difference between organic corn and conventional corn? I mean, you have to have studied that to know how to answer that. And the doctors didn't know. And so the Academy, thankfully, you know, issued a kind of a statement paper. But again, there's huge opportunity in that. And one of the things I tell families all the time is, you know, maybe your best bet is to find a pediatrician or a doctor that's in our demographic, that's our age, that's got kids that are our age, you know, same age, and they're dealing with this and they see this and they're trying to navigate organic too, because then it becomes a real partnership. And then you become sort of a team together caring for the healthier families instead of sort of this, you know, superiority role uh, from someone who may be 30 or 40 years older who, you know, in that case, GMOs had never even been invented, you know, when they were in medical school. So there's no way they could have studied it. So, you know, I think um, that's what's exciting to me is the, the scale of the problem is massive, but that also means the scope of the opportunity is massive. And that's what I get really excited about. I, you know, I agree. I think this is a really ripe time because there's such a 
I get, you know, disruption is a great word in many facets of healthcare. So physicians are gathering together and saying enough is enough. We want to speak to the lawmakers. We don't want, we're tired of the middleman. Like for example, the AMA, 15% of uh, docs are belong to the AMA. Whereas, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, there was maybe 75%. So they're lobbyists, they make money. They, wow, that's so, wait, 15% today versus 75 or 80% 15 years ago? Yeah, 15, 20 that years ago. Fast. Yeah. Wow. And they still send you, I still get, um, registration. What, they, what, they, reason, what reason do they get for that? You know, it's because one, they don't represent our, our thought. I mean, for, they're very liberal oriented. I tend to be more conservative in my own thinking. So as I was reading about the AMA and what they were doing, I was like, I'm not going to pay six, $700 a year for a membership. They still send me an invoice yeah. every single year. They still send me JAMA and I was like, I don't, I can, if I want a JAMA article, I can receive it, but why do you keep sending me this magazine? So they're, they're not even focused on their membership because they would know that I don't actually belong and I haven't for, I don't know, 15 years. Wow. <laughs> and it, it's really incredible to me, but they own the coding system that insurance companies have to actually use. And so they make money when that's in that whole arena there. So they really don't, I don't believe they represent patients. They don't represent the doctors who are actually practicing. And otherwise we wouldn't be in this mess that we're in because doctors, when we, we go to medical school, we want to take care of patients. We hide behind our little desk. We just want to be that person. They come in, we develop that relationship with the family. We're taking care of whomever, internal medicine or the peds or the whole, you know, the whole family. But that's what, that's what we want. We don't want to be like you. You like the job out in the, in the middle, in the, in the back with the computers at the desk. It's the same idea. We want to be in the room with the patient. We don't want to have to deal with the EMR. And then you have these regulations just pushed down our throat. I mean, the administration, I can't remember the exact percentage, but I think administratively it's like a 3,000-fold increase on the number of the administration. Uh, I think it was in the last 10 years as far as in the hospital administration. So, so the burden alone of just dealing with all that is burning people out. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I've heard, I've heard just here locally from allergists that there aren't enough allergists entering the field for the number of kids and people now that have food allergies. I've heard from OBGYNs that they're like, I don't want to be part of this because of the liability. It's too great. So here we've got this like increasingly sick and chronically conditioned, you know, diseased, population which is just like so morbid to even have those words come out of your mouth but it's like you look at the data and it's really there and we again like farming is not a lucrative field and now being a doctor is not as lucrative as we thought it was when we were kids i mean when we were kids like that was sort of like a gold star career and now it's like there's so many issues wrapped around it like you say and listening to you talk it made me think you know maybe the american medical association is really just about data management you know, they capture the data, they get it to the drug companies and the doctor's just sort of the enabler in the middle. So mm -hmm. it's understandable that membership has dropped because, I mean, why do you want to be that enabler? You don't want to be that enabler. You want to help heal people. And I do know and I do believe that that is why doctors, you know, that's why people are called into medicine. I believe that it is one of those professions that truly is a calling. Um, my friends that are doctors always wanted to be doctors ever since they were little kids. And that's a calling and you can't not do that. And so if there becomes that conflict, that internal conflict, that just is, that's, that's heartbreaking and it's brutal. And, you know, again, what, you know, one of the things I've seen in the food industry is we have this association, the grocery manufacturers association, and it protected the interest of the processed food companies, but it didn't really protect their interest because 
as the consumer moved away from processed food and the organic food industry became the only vehicle of growth in the food industry, the Grocery Manufacturers Association, if it was truly protecting, you know, its membership and, you know, fiduciary duty to these due paying members, they would have moved on that, you know, or they at least would have invited the conversation, have people like me come in, talk to the organization, talk to the members, been brave enough to have that conversation. Instead, they completely locked it out. And, you know, I, I don't know how those members haven't dropped out. I mean, the leadership failed by basically saying, we're not labeling GMOs, we're not listening to our consumer, we're not moving with her, we're not securing the supply chain, we're not going to expand organic. Everything that that 21st century consumer needed, the Grocery Manufacturers Association went in the opposite direction. And it's almost like, you know, there was this opportunity right now to create another association, you know, make it the Food Producers Association and bring in unlikely allies, you know, bring in Kellogg and Kashi together as they start to roll out expanding organic agriculture. And General Mills has just partnered with Organic Valley, again, to expand organic agriculture. I mean, we're talking about things happening today. But five years ago, people would have said, you are on something if you even think that's going to happen. And it's happening today. And so, you know, again, I think there needs to be another organization. I mean, the GMA sort of shot itself in the foot. Can we create another organization? And it's almost like, and and you do see it a little bit, I think with the physicians like Neil Barnard and others, but it's like to create a new organization. You know what? What if you got to start the American Medical Association today for 21st century families, knowing what we know about food, knowing what we know about toxicity and everything else? What would that organization look like, and what would it be called? Yeah, there's actually we're working under a new umbrella, and um, it's basically physicians working together. Thousands of disgruntled, and again, it was very interesting how you said in this age, you know, we're mid-40s or younger with kids, you know, my daughter's going to medical school this summer. I don't want her entering, you know, a field of of work that is going to drive her, you know, to depression and burnout early in her years. I mean, physicians have one of the highest suicide rates of any profession, and about 400 physicians kill themselves every year. And I've known physicians who've done this. And it's disheartening that, you know, I can't go to seek help because I might lose my licensure. Um, they make it very difficult for a physician to get help. And, wow. Oh, it's incredible. It's a very, we, we don't take oh, good care of ourselves. That, Lori, gosh. So, um, you know, it, it's, and then if you move into the military, like I was in the military and you have military docs. I mean, I remember being deployed and one shot herself in Iraq. And so it was just, I wasn't in Iraq, but we heard those stories. And it's just, it's disheartening to hear. But we are moving in that direction. And, and I know I told you earlier that I'm going to D.C. next week to hopefully talk with legislatures about this is what our patients want. This is what we want with that relationship with our patients. But it needs to be more than coverage of insurance. It needs to be how can we you know, turn off the faucet because we can just keep letting it run. We can mop it up all we want, but let's turn off the faucet. Let's talk about real prevention, not mammograms and colonoscopies. They have their place, but where is this all coming from? And it goes back to food. Well, and I think, you know, um, I've given so many talks and I'm so thankful because my audiences are so different. And there was one in particular, probably five years ago down in Houston. And it was a lot of MD Anderson doctors were there. And I was on the stage talking about this double standard and how we allow all these additives and fake ingredients in our food and GMOs and glyphosate where the rest of the world holds it, holds our food system to a higher standard and they keep this stuff out because it hasn't yet been proven safe where we take the approach oh it hasn't proven to be harmful yet and you know that sort of like kicks the ball down the road and you know industry will fund the science and tell us it's safe 
much like the tobacco industry, and we keep getting sicker and sicker. And other countries have just said, you know what, we're going to exercise precaution. They call it the precautionary principle, and that is all about prevention. We just haven't done that here. And so when I talk about this double standard of how our own American food companies formulate their products without all these artificial ingredients, without all these additives, without GMOs, and they formulate differently for countries overseas and families overseas. So it's still Walmart, it's still Coke, still Kraft, it's still Pepsi, but they're just making them with better product and better ingredient um, overseas. And I remember at the end of this talk in Houston, this MD Antarson doctor came up to me and he said, we need to upstream what you know. And he said, I call it the doorknob syndrome. He said, I'll have patients in my office time after time after time. And they're sitting there and I'm telling them about the surgeries and the procedures and the chemo and the radiation and everything they're going to have to have done to treat their cancer. And he said, as soon as they turn to go, they will have their hand on the doorknob and they will turn back into his office. And he says, without fail, they will say, doc, what can I be doing differently with my diet? And he said it happened so many times that he started calling it the doorknob syndrome. And I was like, that is heartache. And again, it's like you got the patient asking for it. We've got MD Anderson doctors asking for it. And again, it's like, it's not saying don't do something else. It's saying do this too, you know? And if, if we can start there, if we can just say, listen, you know, during this cancer diagnosis, you know, clean it up, just clean it up. I mean, one of my best friends was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer a year ago. I mean, I hadn't talked to him in years. He'd been living overseas. I get this phone call. He's like, tell me what to do. And I'm like, you got to kick this thing's ass. You got to take everything you are and just get serious about the junk in your diet and, and get this stuff out, you know? And that's hard. I mean, we grew up in Houston and Houston was not a bastion of health and farmer's markets back, back in the eighties. And so, you know, we all grew up kind of eating a lot of trashy food and, um, it's been fascinating to really watch him embrace it. And, it was also really cool because, you know, he's doing all the hardcore chemo and everything else. He's doing all of that. At the same time, he is just going hardcore on the greens and the juices and, and doing all of that. And he's lost, he's lost a bunch of the bad weight, you know, got totally fit. His energy levels have skyrocketed even with all of the treatment. And again, you know, I just think my hope is that, I don't have too many more friends that have to wait for the cancer diagnosis before they decide to make that change. Because it's like, you know, you, you feel sluggy or tired or, you know, grouchy or just fat and bloated or whatever you're feeling that is taking your life away from you every single day. And once you realize that what you put into your body, you know, is your fuel, you're like a car, it's your vehicle. And what you fuel yourself with is going to be how well you perform. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times it takes a crisis for someone to wake up to that. I mean, it did me, you know, I was diet Coke kid and fat free, whatever. And until Tori had this allergic reaction and then all of a sudden we woke up and one of the kids once said, you know, we're lucky she got food allergies because she taught us how to eat. And it really was that kind of a blessing. Um, my, my goal is I just, I don't want anyone to have to suffer. I don't want them to have to hit the diagnosis and suffer before choosing this. I mean, it's, it's a smart choice regardless of where you are on the health spectrum. Right. And you know, that's one of the things too, is there's so many excuses. We, I didn't have the doorknob syndrome because I wasn't an oncologist, but I always had the doorknob. They'd be leaving. They're like, Oh, by the way, I'm still having these other issues. So when you're in, in family practice, at least when I trained, 
you know, they didn't, they didn't train us to be internal medicine doctors for even people in their twenties and thirties. When you have someone come in and they're on 15 medications, they're not even 50 yet. This is a common occurrence. And we don't teach us about polypharmacy and all these different things, or even how to deal with the stress of someone who's depressed. There's so many depressed people that walk through your door they didn't, the, 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 the thought of food never entered my mind until five years ago when I had a patient respond very well. And she said, you know, meat and dairy upset my stomach. And she basically went on a plant-based diet and went on to do very well. And with her, her daughter went on the diet with her and in 30 days pulled herself off to attention deficit disorder meds. Yeah. I mean, and again, it's like, I don't, you know, it's not one size fits all and it's right. what's going to work for one. isn't necessarily going to work for the other, but you know, for me, the, the, my aha moment came as I was, as I was just in mass discovery mode, you know, doing all this research on food allergies, starting to see the food allergy, asthma, food allergy, autism, that these things were interconnected. And, you know, I was looking at our youngest who had this acute life-threatening reaction. And then all of a sudden I'm looking at one of the boys who had suffered just chronic ear infections, chronic bronchial stuff, had been on antibiotics most of his young life. The pediatrician was recommending permanent low-dose antibiotics. And I remember thinking, that doesn't sound right. That does not sound right. And that, thankfully, still thankfully, like that was a moment that I realized I had to be brave enough to break up with my doctor, which again felt like a weird betrayal thing. But I was like, she doesn't know enough to help us. And what we learned, and I was so grateful, there's an amazing doctor, Kenneth Bach out of New York, and his book, Healing the New Childhood Epidemics, Autism, Allergies, ADHD, and Asthma. We were standing in the kitchen. I could not put it down. It was my son. And I thought, you know, I'm going to try taking gluten and dairy out of this kid's diet and just see what happens. And I mean, he sounded by the age of three, like he had smoked three packs a day for 80 years. And it was fascinating how quickly, once we got dairy out of his system, that all that inflammation, all that mucus went away. And a lot of my work, um, you know, the story is of the youngest child with food allergies. A lot of my work was because of that son, because I thought there was so much unnecessary suffering here. There were so many surgeries. And if I had just had a doctor who had told me, you may want to consider that certain foods and certain kids just may not work well together. And it was such a simple solution um, and it, you know, I just thought other, that we have to be brave enough to have these conversations. And so, you know, again, that's why I think younger doctors who have been through this with their own kids, who have been through it personally themselves, um, that that's where it becomes life changing. And, you know, personally for me, as I was taking him off of the dairy, he, he struggled. I mean, he was truly addicted to it. The casein, as I learned, you know, created this reaction between his gut and his brain. And it was truly almost like an addiction. And it was I mean, it was brutal. He was like five. I'm trying to get this kid off of dairy. And I was watching this withdrawal, kind of addictive withdrawal symptom that was happening. And I thought, I have yogurt with every breakfast, cheese with everything. You know, our cheese drawer was like the Mecca, you know. And I thought, I don't know if I could go off dairy. And I want to go through this with him because if I'm going through it too, then I can understand internally what's happening in his body maybe, you know? And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go off dairy. And oh my gosh, I was totally addicted. And I didn't realize I was addicted, but I had that same loop had been set up in, you know, in me. And so as I was going off it, I truly remember seeing a quesadilla one day and feeling like just this, like, oh my gosh, I have to have that piece of cheese. But again, it made me realize how powerful some of these interactions can be in our body. And what was fascinating was that part of the reason 
I had loved finance and hiding behind all those computer screens was because I, did, I suffered from just chronic acne. And I mean, within probably two weeks of getting dairy out of my diet, I remember my husband made a comment about my skin and I just thought, again, like, why does no one tell us this, you know? And to now work with people like Dr. Frank Lipman out of New York, um, you know, he'll, he'll tell people the top three things. He said, if you're triggering on issues, he will say it's gluten, dairy, and sugar, you know, and try eliminating those three things and, and kind of hit your reset button. And if you think about like, what we do, you know, when our computers aren't working or our phones aren't working, we just turn them off, you know, turn them back on. And I think that's what a lot of these kind of elimination diets can do. Um, you know, for me, I just learned, I feel a thousand times better. My energy is better. My skin is like, it's a totally different face I wear now compared to what I wore the first 35 years of my life. And that you just, you know, you don't ever want to go back. And I'm thankful as a mother that with the four kids, I can I have this knowledge and now we have this amazing network, uh, people like you, different scientists, different doctors, pediatricians, people like Dr. You know, Davis down in Houston. And there's so many of us now that are talking about it. Um, that I feel like it sort of becomes an embrace, a uh, safe place for a lot of people now to move. Yeah. I think people feel confident knowing that you kind of have your little your little group and then you expand from there. But the food, you know, the food addiction is an amazing, very interesting thing. Cause I used to tell people cheese and I were lovers. I mean, I gave up. I know, I know, I know. Yeah. I gave up dairy and I thought for three months, I was like, when is this going to go away? But it's the casomorphins and when it breaks down, it's exactly what's going on. And now I'm working in a, in a place where we actually have people come and stay with us. And I'm seeing it every single day. I'm seeing actual, you know, joint discomforts going away, but they have these food withdrawals, like body aches and headaches and moodiness and shakiness. And it's just like, Wow. I mean, it's, I know. I mean, and again, it's like, it's, it's so simple. And I can remember someone once made the comment like, Oh, you poor thing. Don't you miss it? And I'm like, miss what? Like not wanting to wear my own face because of the acne or the like bloating in my gut that made me look like I was three months pregnant or, you know, it's just like, uh, you know what? I, I no, I don't miss anything because I feel like I got my life back. And you know, that, that becomes, once you lock into that, like that feeling is what is the addiction. Like you want to feel good and you want to sleep well each night. And even if you only get five or six hours of sleep, you, you can, you're still up and their energy levels are different. It's a very different, it's a very different way of living. You know, we interviewed Rocco Despirito last week for our podcast and he, um, celebrity chef. I mean, just such a handsome, fun, great guy. And he is really smart. And he was saying how when he kind of had this food awakening, he lost 50 pounds and, you know, his brain just turned on. It just changed his lens on life. And he said it was pretty disruptive. You know, he said, I lost a lot of friends and a lot of my relationships changed because I really became sort of a different person. And um, I think that's, you know, that's a big thing. And I was I was with a company yesterday that works on a lot of nutritional stuff and um they help a lot of these very, very obese people lose a lot of weight. And that was one of my questions is, you know, it's one thing to help a person get the junk out of their diet and out of their kitchen. It's a lot to help somebody get the junk out of their head. And as somebody goes through that transformation, it, a lot of change can occur on a lot of levels. And it does sort of like create this extraordinary kind of evolution of a person. Um, but, you know, for me, I just think about it we are so lucky because, um, 
that the, the kind of that fully awake, fully engaged mindset, once you really are kind of in the space, um, you do find like-minded people and that I'm, I'm so grateful for the family that's in this work because it truly is a family. And I think everybody's story has been very personal as they've come through it. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And you talk about getting removing the junk from your mind, you know, it's releasing all that. So we have in our program, we actually have a very strong clinical program, the, the psychology component of this. So I get to do the fun part. I teach them about the, the diet. I teach them how to cook it. I tell them how to go grocery shopping and reading greens. And these guys are delving deep. You know, there's a lot of grief and loss and all this type of stuff. So I agree that that mindset needs to change. But we have to prepare, I think, the next generation of doctors to get better at dealing with this and having those discussions. And I think, honestly, if you can do a new generation of doctors to lead the way, because these, these kids are brave, like you're talking about. Oh, I know. And I mean, you know, like my son said, it was hard. That transition, getting him off that stuff was very hard. But then it was probably like within the year, he came back to me one day and he said, you know, mom, my tummy always used to hurt. And now it doesn't, you know? And it's like, as a child, he didn't know how to really express that until it didn't hurt. And like me as an adult, like I didn't know what it felt like to feel anything other than sort of medium you know, and once you felt so much better, then you realize like I had been living in this like just stagnant medium. And once you can kind of navigate through that, um, you do realize like you don't have to suffer in so much silence. And I do think to kind of help build up the medical community around that right now is, is crucial. Um, I'm from a conservative family too, and they want to hear it from a doctor. You know, they don't want to hear it from a nutritionist. They don't want to hear it from a registered dietitian. They want to hear it from a doctor. So the more that we can have the medical community really begin to evolve, um, people like you, people like Dr. Furman, people like Mark Hyman, you know, they're thankfully now are just gorgeous crusaders, you know, gorgeous medical crusaders. Um, who are out in front really championing this. Yeah, it's going to have to be because even even though I would have patients from my colleagues in Colorado and I was still there, they uh, didn't necessarily believe what I was actually saying. And they'd have their own patients coming off of insulin, you know, type 2 diabetic, reversing their diabetes within days. And uh, they just couldn't wrap their heads around it. And so um, I agree 100%. So, you know, to wrap this up, I know I take you up past the our time that we had, we had talked about, but I really want to say thank you. And was there any final advice that you maybe you'd give families or anybody that you feel that that message needs to be really honed into and, and say, here's hope or whatever? You know, I would say, don't be afraid to break up with your doctor. If you don't feel like you're getting the right treatment, you know, if it was a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you wouldn't stick with that person. You break up with them. And it's no different here. And you're not a bad person. It's, you know, it may just be time to find a new relationship for medical care. And that that relationship should truly be a team because the parent or the person, the patient knows exactly what is happening 24 hours a day. And that, that part of the wisdom in care is critical. So you need a doctor that is willing to really work with you um, and what you need. And then, you know, um, be brave. I just think life is so short and we are all dealing with some pretty serious issues now. And especially parents, you know, our kids really need us to be brave. So, you know, host a book club, host a movie night, bring in a pediatrician, bring in an allergist to the school, start these conversations. Don't be afraid to start small. The first time I ever gave a talk, um, I grew up super conservative family. You know, the Jewish Community Center here in Boulder decided to host it. 
There were six people that came. One was my pediatrician. One was a friend who was a dietitian. They ended up getting married. And then there were four other people, you know, and that was my first talk. And that, if that was where we started, you know, and that pediatrician and that dietitian are still very dear friends today. Um, but don't be afraid to start small. That's totally fine. And it will continue to grow. Reach out to other people. Um, if you're worried about autism or cancer or food allergies or diabetes in your family, I promise, I promise there is someone else in your community, at your church, at your school, you know, who shares those same concerns and you can find each other and then you can navigate it together. So it's really intimidating to try to do something alone. It's way less intimidating when you do it with someone else. Um, and then the last piece on that, because I know, you know, obviously you guys need it. The food industry needs it. Um, federal policy around this stuff has to change. And, you know, as people were nudging me to reach out to local, you know, congressmen and senators and stuff, I thought like, I have zero interest in policy. That's not me. And then I thought, you know, I knew I kind of had to. And what was so fascinating was inside those offices, you know, it's mainly staffed by like 25 to 35 year olds. It's really young people who really get this. They're really excited to work on something they actually care about in a really deep way. And when you bring these issues to congressional offices, it's usually pretty quickly received. It's pretty easy to get an audience, way easier than I thought it was. I thought it was going to be this like really intimidating, like old guy behind this big mahogany desk kind of a thing. I don't know. I just had this like very daunting thing in my head of what this looked like. And when I remember the first time I got into the office, it was like all these young people. And I was like, oh, it's fine, you know? <laughs> And, um, and so I would really encourage people, you know, like find their website, send them an email if they've done something to help us, whether it's food labeling, GMO labeling, something to do with healthcare costs, um, then, you know, thank them. Um, ask if you can be part of the conversation, get a group of moms or dads or parents or, you know, concerned constituents together and, you know, come together for these meetings. And there's so much strength in numbers. So that would probably be, you know, what I would suggest is find your team and, build it locally because what's happening is that is totally happening around the country and together we really add up. Yeah. I think finding your tribe is really important. And, uh, I, I, I think that's fantastic advice because those kids are so responsive my kids are in their twenties. So, I mean, I, I, I get it. Those are great kids. It's a great generation. So Robin, again, thank you so much for being on my podcast. I mean, I really was a little starstruck. I was like, I'm going to call Robin today. Oh, I'm so glad you did, Lori. It's just so fun to finally like, see your face, too. So thank yeah, you. Absolutely. And where can we find you? Where can someone connect with you? So, you know, probably one of the most dynamic places is on Facebook. And Robin O'Brien USA is my big Facebook page. And it's very vibrant. A uh, ton of feedback. Um I try to keep it really positive. I do not allow any kind of derogatory comments. Um, I, I, the way I feel about it is, you know, this is my house. And I, I love to have these incredible dialogues, these incredible conversations. And I really try to make sure that everybody feels that that's a safe place to have these conversations because the feedback loop is so critical. And the consumers and the constituents, you know, everybody is talking all the time. We're getting feedback all the time, whether we're talking about something in the food industry or something, you know, that's happening with myelin. So Robin O'Brien USA on Facebook and then RobinO'Brien.com um, is my website. And you can sign up for the newsletter there. Very cool. Very cool. And I just wanted to mention to your book that you wrote, you wrote in 2009, The Unhealthy Truth is a fantastic yes. resource. And then um, as well, your podcast, what was the name of your podcast? Yeah, the podcast. I was just going to say that too. Podcast is Takeout with Ashley and Robin. And, you know, that's really fun. She's a, she's a great friend. Um, 
registered dietitian. She's based in Washington, D.C., and um, we have a lot of fun. We interview a lot of different people. And after talking to you today, Lori, you need to be on that show because you need to share some of these statistics. I mean, about the 15 percent, you know, and what you're doing now with um, Congress. And maybe what we can do is have you on after you've gone to D.C. next week as sort of um, to, to follow up and, and make sure we keep the momentum going. Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be a very eye opening experience for many of us. And we're hoping that we'll initiate a conversation that will be ongoing for sure. But again, we're finding our tribe and uh like-minded docs that I didn't realize were out there, but you know, social media has been yeah. a huge. Yeah. I think like, you know, I've done some of that stuff and it feels so daunting and you feel like you're like, you are like digging deep for the courage on it. You know, you're like, I can't believe I'm doing this. You know, who am I to do this? Um, but once you actually do it, it's so empowering. And again, like you realize that these congressional offices, like we're all trying to figure this out. And some are definitely going to be more open-minded to it than others. And I'm not saying that's on any one side of the aisle. I mean, we found both on both sides of the aisle. And, um, but, you know, again, like to start these conversations, very grateful you guys are doing that. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. I'm hoping that we can uh, do some Facebook Live and some other stuff too. So it'll be cool. So, but again, thank you again. And um, everyone, uh, don't forget to, to check out Robin at RobinO'BrienUSA.com. Or on Facebook, excuse me, and then RobinO'Brien.com. So... Thank you again for your time.